Indeed I am. All right, Ben Walland, welcome back to episode number two of our uh, conversation fantasia that is going to go off in a million different uh, directions probably today, but um, let's pick up where we left. First of all, I really appreciate you doing a second one, Uh, and I appreciate I really enjoyed our first conversation, and it seemed like there was some some good reactions and chat around it. And I kind of just want to pick up, I think we only got through two questions or something the last, the last time. Um, well, yeah, so, I, I'm thinking maybe it's a good thing we don't live closer because I'm afraid there'd be like lots of late nights spent talking about all sorts of things. You know? And we'd get fired from our jobs because we weren't doing those properly and we were just talking. Um, but, uh, well, let's pick up. Uh, why don't we start Ben? I think I really appreciated that you had some questions that you brought to the table last chat. And I wonder if we could just pick up there and, and, see where the conversation goes sure that sounds just fine yeah that'll be fun um sure i'll just fire away with with a question let's do it uh, what podcasts do you listen to uh, and uh, there's also a second question in this mm-hmm. uh do you actually listen to your own podcast when you're done recording them i will answer the second one first uh and then get your first question uh no sure objectively speaking i do not i mean i edit them like or i mean i piece them together and spot check stuff just to make sure that you know and if there's anything that generally I don't edit anything out unless the guest requests it um, yeah. and I think I've only in the over with including the drumming at 50 podcasts that I did I think there's like almost 300 now and I think there's maybe only like four four guests who have gone through and clipped out like four seconds of the podcast just on, on their request um, for me personally I'm ethically my limitation is that I don't edit anything out that I say unless, mm. um, unless I genuinely feel like I was way off base or I was, had a stroke and said something that I didn't mean to say. Like, um, I kind of want to live with my past and use it as like data points for myself to just keep evolving and changing. So, when I listen back, if I were to go back and listen to some of those early ones, I'm sure I would be like, oh, yeah, I don't think that anymore. And But I generally tend to not go back and listen if I... I don't know. I just haven't had the desire. Is that weird? I don't think that's weird at all. Uh, it uh, Hearing you talk about this makes me wonder if Concert Honesty Podcast for you is something kind of akin to, like, journaling. Yeah. Or, like, and I think if I was going to... Uh, put a musical analogy to it, I would say it's akin to sight reading. Like, like reading music to me is, I mean, it's not, it's maybe a bad analogy, but it's like, it's a tool by which two people can have a conversation. Right. And I can play a piece of music with somebody from Moscow who doesn't speak English and I don't speak Cyrillic, um, or Russian, uh, using the Cyrillic alphabet, like, but I can hand them a piece of sheet music and by and large, that's going to, we can communicate, right? And we can get, we can then get to the next step of nuance. And to me, I feel like sight reading is the way to get better at conversing with total strangers, (laughs) you know? And it's something I didn't do a lot in school. I wish I had. And now I try to do it as much as I can because in my job was so that's actually a lot of what we do. And, and I'm like, Oh crap, I should have done that more in eighth grade, you know, or (laughs) college. But, um, so having these chats for me is like when I sight read, I don't obsess about it. I read it and then I turn the page. And I read the next one, and then I read the next one. As soon as you go back and try to fix notes, then you're, then you're working, then you're you're practicing, you're doing you're doing other. It's a different mindset. And for me, I yeah. feel like I want to get good at sight reading conversations and read the room and know like, oh wow, they're taking a slower tempo on this than I would 
my job right now isn't to try to speed up the tempo. Or maybe it maybe my job is to sort of nudge us on the front half of the beat or on the back half of the beat. Like those sorts of things. Those are tiny little skills that I feel like I'm developing in a conversational atmosphere that I really it gets me excited. So uh, to go back and sort of reassess and re-edit and things like to make it feel like a performance I would do now, mm-hmm. I just feel like I'd rather just get keep getting better at conversing. Sure. Cool. Uh, you mentioned the uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson podcast in our yeah. last visit. Uh, what yeah. are some other podcasts you listen to? Well, and this that's a, a yeah. Sorry, the first part of your question. I will say just to be brutally honest, the first podcast I ever listened to was Joe Rogan's. Um, yeah. and that was around the time, I mean, he did, he's, he's been doing the podcast, I think since like 2006 or something like that, you know? Right. And, um, and I think it was a Neil deGrasse and my wife turned me on to it. She was listening to it for like, I think there was some, she was into like powerlifting and there was some powerlifter who was on the podcast talking about his life. And she's like, you should listen to this. It was really great. And so I started listening to it and got really interested in like, jiu-jitsu like I'm, I'm not a jiu-jitsu practitioner but like he had a lot of martial artists and at the time like Trump was getting elected and I was also like getting asked by a lot of students and in interviews like what do you do what's your what are your hobbies what do you do and I'm like I play music that's basically <laughs> it you know and the podcast Rogan's podcast was sort of like oh wow I, there are things I can be interested in outside of music and the, the piston stroke and the formality you know or your your snare drum roll and like and then I was like, oh, wow, the martial artists, like jiu-jitsu practitioners, obsess about their rear naked choke or their darce choke or whatever in the same way that, you know, an orchestra percussion obsess about their triangle playing or whatever. And so I, I felt like, oh, I, I can actually be interested in this and learn something because it's the same skill set um, mentally of, like, practice and diligence and slow rehearsal. And, and then when you're in, once you're in the fight, like, then you're sort of relying on a lot of those skills. But then it was like, then Neil deGrasse Tyson comes on the podcast, and I knew of him, but never really followed much of what he was doing. And then he started talking about Carl Sagan, and then they talked about quantum entanglement and like ballistic missiles and like what. The, and I was like, "What is happening? This is so cool!" And <laughs> and then I started listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast, Star Talk, um, off of you know as an offshoot. Like Joe Rogan's podcast for me was kind of the gateway drug to podcasting in general, and. Yeah. Then Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast, Star Talk. Um, Sam Harris, who I think gets a lot of, he is known as a controversial figure in the world, in, in sort of the thought world. But yeah. again, the more I listen to him, the more it's like he's super into meditation and he likes to think and talk about things. I don't agree with him on everything, but he prided himself on like having non heated discussions and really just digging in and maybe not having an answer at the end of it. And to yeah. me, that was like a really attractive thing in the moment of Trump where tweets and headlines were the, it was the concrete that you had to get through to get to the soft nuance in society. And it was just exhausting. I couldn't beat my, I didn't have a, a drill to get through that cement, you know? Yeah. And so then, after, you know, Sam Harris, then I started listening to reading books by like, um, you know, folks that Sam would have on, like Ayan Hirsi Ali, um, who is a woman from Africa, Muslim I think she's from Africa, Muslim descent. Um, just like, you know, I started like getting interested in all these different things. Um, so Neil deGrasse Tyson, Star Talk, uh, Sean Carroll, who's a f- astrophysicist, has a podcast called um, the Mind, Exca- Mind Escape podcast, I think. Um, and he just talks about 
like astrophysics and like all these weird things. And then from there I was like listening to like Joe Rogan has a lot of comedians on his podcast. And I also, during the Trump era was not laughing that much. Yeah. And so comedians were just like, also they were the people, they're the canaries in the mine shaft and you don't have to agree with everything that they say. You don't have to like love Louis CK or Dave Chappelle or Eliza slash. You don't have to love everything they say, but their job also going back to the Greek times, like this isn't like, like when people are like comedians or you know free speech is bullshit, just you, know, you don't get to. It's like, well, okay, well, stop, 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 stop. You realize the Greeks talked about this, right? Like comedians in that role held a special. There was a role in some Greek tragedies where they just stopped, like the thing just stopped, and they got up on stage and started talking shit to the politicians who were in the audience, right? And the politicians expected it, and everybody <laughs> in the crowd was like hissing, hissing at the politicians. Like it was a scripted part of some of those things, and like. Because society felt like it was important to be able to call BS from no matter what part of the class system you were. Now, yeah. it was in a controlled environment. And granted, outside of that, if you started talking shit to politicians, they might cut your head off. But, you know, nowadays, I, I see comedians as sort of pointing out the things that are kind of the, the soft underbelly and the most ridiculous parts of what we all do. And... I just loved it. I loved listening to people talk. And so then I started listening to uh, Bad Friends podcast with Bobby Lee and uh, Andrew Santino. I listened to Your Mom's House podcast with um, Tom Segura and Christina Pazitsky. I listened to Two Bears, One Cave. I just spent way too much money on a Two Bears, One Cave hat. Um, <laughs> with, it's a Tom Segura and Burt Kreischer podcast. I listened to Whitney Cummings podcast. I listened to anything that um, – yeah, there's a one called uh, – Bloodbath, and it's three women: uh, uh, um, Kalila Coon, who's Bobby Bobby Lee's wife, okay. uh, Taylor Tomlinson, and, or Annie, Annie Letterman, I think, and then uh, Esther Pavitsky. And it's like, I don't know. I just now I have like a list of like thirty podcasts that I you know I don't listen to Rogan's every day. I listen to it once a month now because I've got thirty <laughs> others that I'm I'm sort of dropping the needle on. But I don't know if that answered your question clearly, but. Oh, it totally I, did, yeah. It's all over the map for me at this point. And I listen to, like, Jordan Peterson is on my list. Not because I don't, not because I love his worldview and, and want to, like, espouse everything he believes, but I, you know, and Ben Shapiro is on my list, too. Why? Yeah. Because of Neil deGrasse Tyson, actually. Because because I was listening to all these Neil deGrasse Tyson podcasts, and I was hearing all this bullshit about Ben Shapiro, and always oh, the devil, and blah, 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 blah. And then Neil deGrasse Tyson did, went on Ben Shapiro's podcast. And, I, and in my head, I was like, huh. I really respect the shit out of Neil deGrasse Tyson. If he's making that decision and he feels okay with it, let me trust him for two seconds. Right. And so then I listened to that podcast and it was actually on Ben's channel and it was all about religion. You know, Ben is an Orthodox. I don't know if he's Orthodox Jewish, but, and, and, but he's very religious. And then Neil deGrasse Tyson, I, I wouldn't say he's not religious, but I think he's, he comes from a more scientific standpoint of how religion and science should interact and butt up against each other. It was probably the best hour and a half podcast I've ever heard of anyone talking about religion, pushing back on each other without becoming with no animosity. And I left, I was like, whoa, that was awesome. Now I don't listen to Ben Shapiro every day. I, yes, he drives me nuts and I hate when he reads ads or right in the middle of a converse, right in the middle of a sentence he's making. And then he'll be like, and let's go to mypillow.com. It's like, oh, why? you know, um, so anyway, I'm saying all this to know that a lot of people just hearing me say those words, like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, as would would immediately I understand the reaction that people are going to have. What mm-hmm. I'm asking folks to to do is just clock that reaction and then actually 
test it. Are you right? <laughs> like your feelings aren't proof of anything. And if you, if you have a feeling that, you know, Ben Shapiro is the devil, test that feeling by listening to him talk to somebody who you think is not the devil, like, like Neil deGrasse Tyson. And then after that, if you still think, fine. But my hunch, my hunch is just like the rules of John Cage. It's like, if you don't like a sound, keep doing it until you like it again. You know, like, why are we okay talking about that with music? This idea that like maybe aesthetics, maybe something you're not sure of is something you should just keep practicing like Porgy and Bess. I have a feeling about Porgy and Bess. What's your feeling about Porgy and Bess? I'm terrible at it and I don't want to do it because it makes me horribly (laughs) uncomfortable, you know, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean anything. That just is my personal baggage with Porgy and Bess. And like, I'm just saying all this to like, I try to apply the way I look at things in music, um, the same way I look at things in life and, and what I, what I consume on a daily basis. So that was a, that was an 18 minute answer to your two part question, Ben. And I apologize, but no worries. Yeah. What do have you, you do? Have Sorry, you heard the working it out podcast with, uh, uh, his last name always makes me think of Babingo Wood. Um, but it's uh, he's a comedian who mm-hmm. was um, oh gosh Berbiglia. he was is on the Jeff, movie Train uh, Wrecked Berbiglia yeah there we go yeah Mike, Mike Berbiglia I, I know of him but I don't know that podcast yeah and his format is interesting because he'll bring on comedians who are working on material and they mm. literally work on a material like, the last half of it and that is the shit that is what like um, yeah. I'm trying to think a uh, Mark Maron's podcast W two T F is very similar. There's a, a, a podcast I've only listened to a few episodes. I think it's Rich Voss. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Like, what I've loved about the comedians talk about this all the time. Like, their process. Like, when somebody films Louis C.K. on stage and then puts it out, like, look what's happening. He said this clunky thing. It's like, okay, you could do that with every comedian on the planet. What's hap- They can't workshop their material, offensive or not offensive, without an audience. Right. And so when you're filming somebody and then you're like, look how shitty this act was. All right. Let me film you playing Scheherazade. Totally. Your totally. third day in and put it out and be like, never trust this person in an orchestra audition. It's like, wait a minute. That's exactly what you just did. Now, it feels different because you're in a club and people are serving drinks and it's you've paid five bucks to be in the room or whatever. But you need to readjust your perception of what that room is for. Like that room is a lab and – there's a little bit of like what happens in that lab stays in that lab. And I personally feel like no matter how offensive something is in that room, like I want to, I want to, I want to say that if I was in that room and I was horribly offended, if somebody made a joke about people with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, you know, my dad died of that. I would have a reaction of like, (laughs) but I also want to feel like, all right, I knew that that what's the, I knew that that's what this room was for. Yeah, I knew that that was a risk I took coming in here and I need to then maybe not take that risk again in the future if I don't want to have that experience. But out of respect for the idea that I might be playing a concert in the at the stone or some hall where I've played a piece or I just recorded six pieces at UPenn the other, you know, two days ago where I wasn't prepared as uh-huh. much as I'd like to be. You know, yeah, I've, we were essentially. It's, yeah, OK, but I want to I want to sort of protect the idea that there are that there are spaces where experimentation happens and you don't always know what's going to come out the other end. Yeah. I've, 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 uh, 
Well, first of all, I also in the last um, in the last couple of years, I've taken a lot of comfort in comedians. I, I didn't see that coming when I was a kid. I didn't like growing up watching Eddie Murphy or like Richard Pryor. You'd be like, "How is that going to be speaking truth to power thirty years from now?" But like later, looking back, you're like, "Oh, I get it. They actually were at, at a certain time, you know, and in a certain way." Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think for me. It, it made the absurdity of the last year and a half so bizarre that it's like, wow, Dave Chappelle is the best voice making sense right now to me, you know? Well, um, but also, if you go on parts of social media, he is the devil. Oh, because, of course, yeah, you know, and, and it's, because of the trans piece, right? And right, and it, and and it feels like so much of the comedian landscape was is exactly what you were talking about. Like, mm-hmm. uh, yep, uh, part of their role in society is to push uh, real far and real hard in certain arenas, and if it comes at a price, it seems like a lot of uh, a lot of artists are prepared to pay that price, you know, and. <laughs> Uh, and I've been intrigued when people talk about things like cancel culture mm-hmm. to see uh, how it is that certain people are able to weather it and some people aren't. Like, how is it that, well, I mean, uh, like Louis C.K., like, like something in me feels like he's going to be showing up doing amazing stuff in the next five or ten years, um, maybe even the next five or ten months, just mm-hmm. because he's that good, even though all of the things that went down with Louis C.K. are so egregious over the course of his career that somehow it's going to be the Michael Jackson thing where people do the like, oh, he's just that good. I'll, I'll, I'll plug my nose and enjoy it. You know? Well, um, let me, let me ask you like, cause I, I, you're, you're sort of pushing on something with me that I've, I, I personally am rec- trying to, to reconcile or reckon with is like mm-hmm. the idea that people are, that we cut people out of, society or life in general and how we do that and what is the or is there a path to redemption what does that look like what is what what could somebody like maybe michael jackson or louis is uh, what is there anything that louis ck or let's let's maybe not leave louis let's leave louis ck out of this because there there's a there's a level there where there's like he did something possibly like put people in uncomfortable positions sexually. So like there's a, there's a different level of nuance that I'm personally not a hundred percent sure how to talk about, but like sure. Dave Chappelle, for example, like sure. the, there are people upset with him because of a joke he made about, you know, LGBTQ and trans folks in a, in a bit. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's say that that is something that is worth keeping someone off a st- public stage because that is an offensive thing. In the United States, we have freedom of speech, where you can't be a, you can't be locked up for saying something offensive. You can be locked up for causing a panic, like screaming fire in a crowded theater. And even that seems to be <laughs> that slippery slope seems to be going away too. But um, there are other places where you know I know in Canada that there are there are panels that discuss types of speech and how you what's appropriate in society. For me, what would be the what would be the thing that Dave Chappelle would have to do? And maybe this is a thought experiment. Like you and I get to decide what the, like, what is the path for redemption? What is the mechanism by which somebody like Dave Chappelle offends people? And then he needs to do X, Y, and Z. And then the problem is not, I wouldn't say resolved, but there's an apology. The other side says, great. Are you asking me? Mm-hmm. I, I, I have a lot of strong feelings about that, and I'm glad we're getting to talk about it because uh, it, 
to me kind of resonates with where we were at, you and me, at the end of our last visit. Um, mm, mm. Something about our last visit uh, that left a, a strange taste in my mouth. Uh, was I hope it was an talking. okay strange taste and not like bitter and bile oh, flavored. No, but it was like, <laughs> wow, why was I so uncomfortable with this line oh. of conversation for 12 okay. minutes? Um, like two middle-aged white guys talking about mm. things like slavery, you know, um, that, or for instance, that I would even have an opinion on how Dave Chappelle should, you know, uh, uh, maneuver the nuances of people's expectations, you know, mm. uh, but we did find ourselves at the end of our visit, um, talking about grace. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? Yeah. Um, they, they, remind me about these 12 minutes because I, I think I'm, I'm in the, I have a lot of those 12 minutes and I think sure. I'm, I'm just slightly <laughs> well, less, well, less I, yeah, I think it came, I think it came easier for the, for you, um, as host than it did me as a well, guest. I apologize. Yeah. If I, I truly apologize it, it, to me. I'm, oh, I'm just like in that seat no a lot. Worries. So it's, no, it's no, this easier. is, and this is why we do this. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for me, it was, uh, you had said something, um, oh gosh, we were talking about social media and how, for as as strongly as uh, we feel about how people should drum, uh, is how people felt about slavery. <laughs> do, you, do you remember this? Um, and that slavery for us could be just a stand-in for um, for just bad things. You know, like it, it feels a little cartoonish because we just as easily could have said this is how people felt about margarine or this is how people mm-hmm. felt about moving vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that our brains immediately go to this ca- kind of cartoonish version of what's bad. Yeah. And so often, I think when people like ourselves are sp- speaking from a place of comfort or from a, a space of, well, I'm sorry if it uh, bugs people who are listening, but like from a place of privilege, um, mm-hmm. we can talk about that in an abstract sense. When for certain people, it's generations deep that it's a very real thing in their lives, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I got off task though. The oh, okay. the Dave Chappelle. Um, mm-hmm. What does it take for him to quote be redeemed? I, I think that's sometimes one of the biggest challenges of where people are at right now. They're so good at lighting people up, but they're out of practice at figuring out what it is to reconcile. Um, for you to listen to Ben Shapiro, not agree with him, but still listen, seems like going to the gym. And so many people don't go to the gym. Like it's there's value in yeah, going to the gym. To sucks. You don't agree with. Are you kidding me? Going to the gym blows. Like, yeah, I don't, I didn't, I, I don't like wake up being like, yeah, new Ben Shapiro episode. But sometimes I have a, that's like a left bicep curl for part of my brain that never gets exercised. And, well, and I think it's super important um, to, to study what people that you might consider an adversary or people who you just don't understand where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. That's, and be willing to be changed along the way. Because if you're not prepared to do that, how can you expect any reciprocity on the planet from anyone else, right? Yeah. And yeah. to me, I think that's that's a huge part of being a responsible adult is being prepared to keep growing and not just be an overgrown 19-year-old. I think some of what you're saying makes me, and again, like this may be me saying something that is like, I'm sorry, it makes you feel this way, but like I'm I'm coming to feel like also based on enough data points and not just Dave Chappelle, it could be politicians. It's a local school teacher who doesn't want to wear a mat like, and has to make a public apology. Like I've seen very little, maybe one work in a way that it seemed like it was intended to work. And now maybe that was a very, are you you talking about the rubbing the sand in the head apology thing? Yeah. And, and so, so again, again, to me, I'm trying to be like, okay, maybe that doesn't mean that apologies aren't appropriate. Yeah. Say you're sorry, but, how maybe in the social media realm 
the onus is more on me than it might be on Dave Chappelle to learn more about Dave Chappelle. And if I've learned, if I've gone, like if Dave, if somebody says something that's offensive to me, it's not like, you know, I'm not trans, but I have people in my life who are. I have yeah. students in my life who are. I care about them with, I take a bullet for them just like I would the straight white kid from, you know, Tennessee. Like, but again, like that's, I, I feel like in a society, I want to be able to, um, try to balance all that so that, yeah, I don't know. Like if a, if a student came to you, he's like really upset that Dave Chappelle said this thing and you, I know you like Dave Chappelle and I need you to stop listening to Dave Chappelle out of respect for me. I think I would totally understand why someone else would feel that way, having lived the entire life they've lived. If I lived the entire life that that other person lived in the exact same body with the same brain, the same hometown, the same experiences, the same bullying, mm-hmm. it would be presumptuous as shit for me to think that I wouldn't feel the same way that they do. Yeah, right? well, I think and, that's where the presumption uh, it, it it still feels to me like growing pains mm-hmm. that we're uh, we as kind of a civilization are trying to wrap our head around if if that scale on social media is just to 11 every time someone uh, has a misstep of any of any sort like that in between space is it feels like it's getting less and less explored right now yeah and that's why i think it's so important to spend time with people you disagree with because we need that growing up and i've i've been blown away by a lot of my students who they seem so much better at making that space than a lot of adults I know on social media right now because they've grown up in that landscape understanding that it's unhealthy. Because these poor kids have grown up um, with all sorts of body image uh, concerns, all sorts of wild, out-of-control expectations about what their careers should be, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be when I was in high school, like my uh, my big nemesis when I was in high school was a kid named John Hall who was a year younger than me, and he played the Creston, the Creston Concerto. And Dave Eiler was his teacher, and like I was so upset as a junior in high school that a sophomore was playing the Creston Concerto. And, oh, sorry, Concertino, <laughs> right? And and I just think, like, dang, if the internet was a thing, like, I'd be so freaking, about, freaking out about some eight-year-old in France, you know? Like, yeah. So the, those standards are so different now. And that's just in music performance. Mm-hmm. What if we are indeed talking about someone's moral stature? And, like, can they check off all the boxes of being a flawless individual? I, I think there's a lot of value in... Uh, uh, sitting with our first responses mm-hmm. until a second one shows up and our third one shows up and, and seeing what that is. Because I do think if we break out of that kind of amygdala space when we're on social media yeah. and limit that, like put it in a box, don't spend more than 10, to, 10 minutes a day. You know, yeah, I, uh, I did something with Facebook that just kind of rocked my world. Uh, Jeff Queen had funny enough posted it on on Facebook about a year ago that he had taken Facebook off his phone but he kept his messenger app. Um, oh yeah yeah yeah. So Facebook for me now is it's just something on my computer once a day or maybe in the morning. Um, but what it isn't is being told when to pay attention to my phone. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and well, what it's it, like- also also what it isn't is me logging on to pass time when I'm at a crosswalk or something. Yeah. 
And well, and I, it feels like a much healthier relationship that I have with social media now. And I believe that as we get older and as that ecosystem continues to grow, we're going to get better at it. It's just going to get kind of messy for a while. Yeah, and I, you know, one of the things I've come to realize about about the sort of, uh, you know, it's like you ever seen somebody in a hospital who's on hospice and they've got that morphine button. Yeah. And I feel like that's what my phone is now. And, and I, I'm wondering how much younger generations are aware of that, but also, you know, they're being hand, they're being told like, okay, jump in this pot with the rest of us. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the pot's boiling and you all don't, you, you all have not been aware that it's been raising in temperature for the last 10 years. And so maybe they're forced to jump in, but I think I am clocking a little bit of, there's a little bit more wiggle room now I'm feeling with, I think some folks are understanding a little bit that social media is not, is not reality. It's not proof of concept of what a person or who a person is or why someone can or can't participate in a conversation. Just to go back to what you were saying about, you know, people in our situation, you know, two white guys talking about, about race or about gender or whatever. Like one of the things on that tip that has been, where when I the one of the reasons I see for the losing of the gray area or the sort of vacuuming out of the gray area is has been the pro, the approach over the last couple of years of really smart people who I know have thought a lot about this stuff immediately out of fear or what they say is respect saying I will say nothing because I will say nothing you said I, I will say nothing I'm yeah. here to listen 100 percent of the time. That's yes. Listening is awesome. Like, yes, absolutely. But I also, I don't know how to say this without sounding arrogant, but like there is a point where I feel it is not good for society when a lot of smart, thoughtful people who want to learn are being told to just do the work. Yeah. And then, like if and then when you're like, okay, what should I, well, if you don't know what the work is, then that's proof that you are racist or that you need to reeducate yourself. And I, I don't, as someone who has worked in black communities a lot and is getting, mm-hmm. gets put in front of large groups of Caribbean people to tell them what to do with their music. Yeah. And to me, the, I'm not asked to talk to them about systemic racism or anything like that. I'm asked to talk to them about a cultural part of their lives, which is how to play Caribbean, you know, Calypso or Soca music or in a panorama style, right? Kendall Williams. Now in that situation, I, for 10 years, I have never, ever once felt personally by any of those folks. No one has ever said to me, you're not allowed to say anything to us because you don't, you never lived this music. You know, there's been like a deep, deep trust that has gone back and forth. And it's, it's a, Trust in the community is important, right? There's no way to build that trust if your mouth is shut all the time. And to me, that means I've had to have really hard conversations. I've had to ask the dumb question. I've asked people like, what do you mean by ashy? Sure. And like that, and they're like, oh, that means your skin is dry. I'm like, oh, what's a weave? (laughs) What's the difference between a weave and an Afro? What's the difference? What, what? What is, what are dreadlocks? What, what is, why do you, why are dreadlocks worn up? Do you know? Oh, you're asking why are dreadlocks yeah, yeah. worn up? I, uh, I just learned this the other day. 
Well, they're not always worn up, right? Not always, but, but in the Rastafarian yeah. culture, why do you think they're worn up? Is it about uh, being able to maintain them? It is about it. They're considered, um, and again, like I'm not an expert here, so I'm sure someone would, would find a pick uh, something I'm saying wrong here. But by and large, it is they are receptacles of energy. Yeah, and just being closer to God. Like, and I was like, oh, like I don't, I don't feel that way about my beard and my hair and my dread, my you know. But it's like, oh, now I understand why when I walk through a neighborhood where there's a lot of Rastafarian you know, folks, Mm -hmm. why everybody's got their head up wrapped, you know, like tight. And it's like, like, Oh, now I have another data point of why, why somebody is doing something, but it's because I asked, nobody came up to me and was like, hello, white person. Let me educate you on all of the nuances here so that you feel comfortable. That's not how it's going to happen ever. You have to ask and, but you have to build the trust first. And that took me 10 years. And I, and I'm sitting here on the other end of Facebook being like, I understand. Yeah, 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 yes. Let's talk about DEIA. Let's do all those things. But trust me, when the rubber meets the road, you're going to have to open your mouth and say something that you think. And so much of it, I think, boils down to character once you do open your mouth. Mm -hmm. Uh, To have listened enough to actually speak from a place of of humility and compassion and not presume to understand everything about Mm -hmm. the person you're talking to. You know, like, I I can't... a Rastafarian who would be upset with you for not understanding his or her uh, spiritual construct, you know, with uh, with headwear, like. Uh, but a Rastafarian like, who I get into a fight with about a vaccine. Sure. <laughs> when you again, if I had lived my entire life the same way that person has, where from birth I am told that everything growing out of my body is akin to God, and God wouldn't have put it there if it wasn't for that end. I have natural remedies my whole life. Somebody gives me ginger when I get a cold rather than Tylenol or Sudafed. Like if I had that same belief system my whole life, I would think the same thing. And then, but, but having that cultural context allows me to then be like, okay, there are some no go streets here when I'm having a conversation about vaccines and medicine, not no go, but just like, I can't say the same thing to that person that I might say to my friend who just graduated from Columbia Medicine. You know, well, sure. like, well, and, and at a basic level, there's just manners involved too. Right. You know, like that Rastafarian isn't asking your opinion on things. No, <laughs> you, no, know no. <laughs> you know, so like just to cough up, like, I think you should be doing X. Um, that has to be earned. And I, I think that's one of the hard things about social media right now. It's great for talking, but it's really hard for listening unless you're going there with the mindset of doing so. Right? And like you said, earning, like to me, that's the thing. Like I've, I've ha- I have a lot of relationships with folks on Facebook, but I'm growing my genuine friend base because once that conversation on, like, for example, the vaccine thing, I, I, I got into a little spat with a, a, a new friend named Kadeem Aline on Facebook. I listened to that, yeah. And um, I, I, the podcast, unfortunately, uh, the reception on both ends was bad, and it was really kind of hard to understand. But but I we had a little bit of a stressful moment on Facebook, and I, and I was like, I took that as a, like, this is proof I need to talk to this person and stop typing. So I messaged Kadeem. I was like, Hey bro. Well, totally. Think, yeah. That's, I think I've that's been on you double down and try to uh, try to understand. Right. You don't de-platform, de- you know, you don't disengage and like just hate the person the rest of your life. Yeah. Why can't I block him? Because I'm going to run into him. 
<laughs> I know I'm going to cross paths with him, and I don't want to be like have this awkward like avoid walk around the other way because I I saw somebody I got in a fight. With. No, so I message him, I talk with him, and he ends up. I don't know if you noticed the one part where I, we were talking about his parents or his father, and I think his mo- mother and father being involved in, in an organization called Pan Trimbago that was really is really important in terms of the history and culture and and organization well, and, 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 and politics too, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And he started. He yeah. got really emotional and started like tearing up a little bit. And to me, I was like, man, if I hadn't, I'm really, really glad I emailed him or messaged him because I would not have been able to participate in that moment of genuine human action. And then from there, because like I said earlier in our conversation about the sight reading aspect of having a conversation, that was a moment where I was like, I'm sight reading now. If I'd have just been like, let's go back to the vaccine. Like (laughs) to me, I was like, okay, all right, we're taking this a little slower. He wants to play this on the backside of the beat. So I'm going to sit back with him and just be quiet. And so it was like an uncomfortable, like 15 seconds of silence, but 120 podcasts ago, I would have interrupted him because I was uncomfortable in that moment. And I really hope people, when they hear these conversations, they don't listen to him and get upset about a vaccine or they listen to me and get upset about something I said, because I'm a little more nuanced on vaccine mandates or something like listen to how the conversation happened. And ask mm-hmm. how it didn't devolve into screaming and yelling. And then ask yourself if you can write down exactly what happened and then use that in the same way you practice method of movement. <laughs> sure. You know? Well, especially if you fast forward and ask yourself your role as an educator eventually, should that be part of your career path? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a huge part of being a teacher is yeah. just shutting your mouth and giving that student space. <laughs> like, just yeah. shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I had a student walk into a lesson yesterday and her sister died from COVID. Jesus. This weekend, a week ago, she was. Uh, she thought she had a cold on Monday, and by the end of the week, uh, her sister was dead. All right. Like, what am I going to like presume to have answers for that hour? <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like the best thing I can do is give that student space to uh, to decompress and try to find some sort of structure in their grief. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? And totally, I think yeah. so many times as educators, because we care so much about our students, like we think we have this monopoly on insight and that it's our job to talk a bunch and to model what's the, the best version of Bolero, <laughs> you know, when so often kids are bringing completely different needs into the room and yeah. making space for them to offer up their part of who they are. Um, if you're listening closely enough, you'll hear what they're saying. They're just not using the words that we normally yeah. do. And as a teacher, I mean, it's the thing that I'm, I personally am trying to clock for myself like sometimes in that moment, the thing that the student might actually need in order to have a foundation upon which to feel good about themselves to get through the day might be an hour long work on their snare drum roll. Well, yes, and it that's, might. And, and be, to me, that's a big deal because I think when I start talking about what that is in the teaching side, people misunderstand that that's like this is where kids come to share their feelings, and it's like. Well, that's part of it, but that's only a part of it. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, in a moment of grief, sometimes we can pour our grief into projects in such powerful, compelling ways that it makes for amazing art, right? And it might very well be that that student's walking into a lesson not looking to talk about this. So when you say, how was your weekend? They're like, yeah, I just lost a family member. Can we work on snare drum rolls? <laughs> and that's okay, right? <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah. Cause, and some, sometimes your job is to be 
an un, unqualified grief counselor, <laughs> you know, as, well, as long as you too, say out frankly. loud, as long <laughs> as you say out loud, just so we're clear, I went to Yale to study music. I, but I too, I too have lost people in my life, not in the exact same way you have. So I'm happy. I want you to know that you're not alone in this feeling. Having said that, what do you want to talk about? Like, yeah. If you if you lead with that generosity of spirit, then the student isn't being like, well, this person is going to solve my grief. And if they don't, then they're a bad teacher. It's like, no, 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 we're all humans. I'm just a 42-year-old version of you. Like, that's all. That's the only difference. You know, I was in that chair yeah. once, you know. Yeah, I heard a, a speech. I think his name is Dan Hale, the mm-hmm. the uh, the actor who's in Arrested Development, the guy with the hand. Do you know who I'm talking about? Um I feel like I know Arrested Development really well. Oh, and I, I and he was also in Veep. Uh, so in oh, Arrested oh, Development, yeah, 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 he's yeah. The, the weird brother, you know? Yes, yes. Uh, I heard him give a speech about seven years ago. And in it, he just he directed immediately to college students in the crowd. And he said, I want you all to hear this. And I want you to hear it good. <laughs> um, ad- adults and professionals, they don't have these feelings of doubt. And uh, they, they also have these feelings of doubt and dread about their profession. They're just better at it because they're more experienced. Oh my god! I agree a hundred percent. Yeah, there's not a bit of that. Why should a forty-year-old magically have answers to things? Do you know what I'm saying? Much less an eighty-year-old. I think we're just better at not having those answers. Well, that leads me to. I have a question for you. I think, as a you know, in terms of you know, uh, being in a position of as an educator, being in a position where you know, a position of power, a position of privilege, of all the things. I'm curious, like on that tip, to me, that's a sign that that is a little bit of a symptom of that's something I, sorry, I'm not forming this question. Well, Ben, I apologize. That's um, okay. It's a symptom that I feel like I, I realized when I was in school, like there's something here. I'm not quite, I feel like if somebody would have just said this, I would have been able to see things a little clearer. And not to fault any of my, you know, my, my teachers in undergrad or grad school, but there was a very, there was a sense that there was like a clear answer, like a path, you know, there was an orchestra path, there was the marimba path, there was world music, but that was like, you're going to end up playing in bars for your whole life, like jam band. That was like sort of the vibe, you know? Um, And then there was teaching and then, but it was like teaching at a college was the clearest path. If you couldn't do any of the others, then go teach band, you know? Um, as what an egregious sentiment by the way right (laughs) yeah i i mean i'm not saying that's what i believe i'm just saying that was what kind of felt like was in the air and i could be i could have misdiagnosed it as a no i I felt a very similar thing as well in college um Um, but now there's this like the idol is being switched for the sand of the bag of sand moment where like (laughs) there's a I i feel like one of the things that's happening is students whether they're realizing it or not, are, are reacting a little bit against some of the things maybe you and I felt of like, hey, dum-dums, there is no clear path. Why are you pretending like there is? I'm paying you're saying s- that's what the students are thinking? Whether or not, I'm, I'm wondering if that's the underlying feeling of like, like this like energy is like, they know that, or they sense it is. down. Well, they, in large part, because there isn't a clear path. Right. And right. so like, for me, that, that, question, that path is getting murkier and murkier as as the future shows up faster and faster with terms of technology. Like I was I was just daydreaming today. Like, I wonder what the first AI marimba solo is going to sound like, uh, you know, like because uh, there's good or like or when we talk about like, um, oh, gosh, 
augmented reality and like like is sheet music even going to be a thing in 20 years or do you just like pop on glasses and hit dots on a marimba and it's on your yamaha setting instead of your marimba one setting right like like that whole landscape that we thought was relevant in in say the 80s and the 90s like that's in flux right now so much like like two years ago uh, there wasn't the conversation well there was in certain circles, but not nearly as robust now where you're like snare drum, keyboard, timpani, multiple percussion, a world thing, a mediocre drum set. And then now it's now it's production value, too. Like uh, you're, you're not doing well unless you own five thousand dollars worth of gear and you're like doing extraordinary yeah. videos with every project you touch. You know, like I'm thinking if I was a high school kid right now, I'd feel like I need to throw up content of yellow after the rain for some reason and hope that people like it. And, and there's like we have to reconcile that in in our pedagogy, or else we're just going to be bringing a knife to a gunfight. Well, let me ask. You, so on that tip, I mean, what I feel like one of the things I've tried to do, and I think early on it was a way of abdicating my my anxiety because of what my teachers were telling me. You know, uh, Bob Ensyce many times was like, "We're going to get you a job." I'm going to get you a job. And I was like, and he was doing it with students who are graduating. So I was like, well, he clearly can do this. So I guess that's what is going to happen, you know? And then I, thankfully in one way or another, the world was so opened up for me at the end of my time in grad school, it was a less sort of a clear job description and path, but that's where I went. Um, I feel like early on, I was telling students like, I have no interest in any of you becoming professional steel drummers. Like I'm trying to figure out how to do that. I don't know how to do that, you know, and I'm, and I don't care if any of you, like, I want you to come out of here being good people and being someone I would be happy to write a letter of recommendation for regardless of what career you went into. And now 10, 15 years later, I I still say that. And I actually am like, I stand by it. I stand by it still. I still mean that. But I do think I'm curious now, like, what do you think the, unintended consequences of like, just like the unintended consequences of portraying a clear career path has led to where we're all now, where there's some things like, man, that wasn't always correct. Now, if I take this mindset, maybe if you share the same one, like we don't, let's stop caring whether or not any of these kids, I've got to stop calling them kids. Any of these students go on to do anything we've taught them in music, but they still use that skill set to become gardeners or accountants or social workers. What do you think the unintended benefits and cons to that approach might yield in 15 or 20 years. Yeah, I think about that a lot, actually. Um, and I, just let me give it a couple of seconds just to get the best words for it. Mm-hmm. Lately, I've been thinking that we had a huge mistake in music advocacy in like, uh, selling the Mozart effect so hard because I, I've come Drill, to believe. Can you explain that just a little bit for folks who have, I think I know what you mean by Mozart effect, oh, sure. but like what, oh, what do you the, mean by that? The idea that studying music is a gateway to being good at math and science. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. That like, uh, if you grow up playing violin, you're going to be killing in STEM educate, you know, like, yeah. uh, and to me, I mean, that's clearly not why most, uh, professionals in music, uh, pursue music. Right. Um, as if it's a means to an end, but if engaging music is a means to an end, 
to me, it's about the, the very sense of community in real time in a room, the analog version of community that mm. seems to be waning so hard in mm. the social media landscape. Um, students show up with profound anxiety uh, about making mistakes in front of one another mm -hmm. and how cool it is for educators to be able to provide a playground where students can come in, make a boatload of mistakes and leave that room still feeling like a decent person. Ben, I think I'd be one of your best students. <laughs> What's that? I would be one of your best students, I think. <laughs> well, and to me, it's about a trajectory. It's it's not static. Like, I'm yeah, not expecting yeah. them to be perfect. I'm expecting them to be working toward perfection, right? right, right. Um, so if they're showing up and they keep making that same mistake, well, then, then there's conversations to be had. But I want them making oodles of mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that they get to the, the, the next better mistake to be making, right? Um, and eventually, they get good at learning to make their mistakes privately so that they can support one another publicly and and to me when we talk about the future of music education and what it is 10 or 15 years later to have said what you do isn't as important as how you do it i think that's dangerous in large part because a lot of people still don't understand how to read that right because i do have plenty of like really sensitive students who are really good at caring for one another who are still kind of sucking. <laughs> right? Right, okay, yeah, so, so stop, stop at, for two seconds. At a certain I wanna, point, you still need me, to be able to throw down. Right. Let me stop you there for two seconds because that, that to me is the thing that as students who are listening to this, I, I again, you're going to be like, hold up a second, Mr. Walland. <laughs> like, and, and again, I just want to just put in here a pin that both myself and Ben – were those students at some point yeah. where you thought you were awesome and somebody else, a third party was calling balls and strikes and was like ball. Right. My first, my first lesson with Larry Snyder. Um, and I mean, and it, it, I was playing snare drum roll and he used more colorful language with me. And I, I stand by his use of that language and I would take a bullet for him for using it. But I'll, I'll, I'll adjust it here for podcast purposes, but I, I, yeah, he had his practice at a five minute roll. So soft to loud to soft over the course of five minutes. All right. I get in there and I'm like, I'm fucking, I'm fucking killing this. <laughs> kill this. Oh my God. It's like glass, like sand on tissue paper, <laughs> baby girl. Come on, Bubba. And I get done. Right. And I look up at him. Like, I was just like, yeah, I've never heard anything like that before. Have you? <laughs> and, and he goes, and he, you know, Larry's from Texas. He's like, buddy. Your snare drum roll sounds like two skeletons dancing on a tin roof. And I was like, <laughs> and then he just walked out of the room. And he I was like, out. yeah, yeah. And, and like, because he's like, well, I mean, you got to keep doing this. Like, like, yeah, here's a few pointers, but I've heard many rolls like that before. <laughs> and right. and I stopped and it was like, wow, that sucked. That hurt. But when I when I listened back to my, the recording of my, I was like, Oh wow, he is spot on. Like if you yeah. were to record two skeletons dancing on a tin roof. Um, so uh, the reason I say that is like what it is important that students have brutal honesty, yep. but in a way that doesn't, isn't emotionally damaging how I have found it tricky to do that because sometimes just the, like you missed that note is enough of an emotional travesty for somebody that they collapse and you can't get anything else done. Like that's yeah. my worry. That's the con I think I'm wondering about with the approach that I'm one that I'm, I, I feel like I want to inhabit is like, 
I do feel like you have to have like a scalpel every once in a while and be like, there's cancer rip, 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 and cut it out. And you're going to feel a pinch, but it's like, actually, okay, I'm better now. Like <laughs> that cancer's but gone. I think certain times, uh, I think the, the moment calls for a scalpel and other times it calls for a big bat, you know? And, <laughs> and, and I think it has so much to do with reading the students' needs. Um, and I think that's where the real Kung Fu teacher is bringing some healthy game. Uh, I, I get really excited about this conversation because I spent the better part of my career teaching privately, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just, uh, for a long time, I had a private studio of about 60 kids that I was seeing every week, right? Well, that's, that's uh, interesting. Just to, just to, just to clock this too. I spend most of my life in chamber music coachings, which is a slightly different, slightly oh, sure. different skill oh, yeah. set. And like I use more of a, like that. I feel like I, I'm wondering if I use my bat more or my scalpel more in a chamber music setting. I can't, I can't quite figure it out. Well, I, I would imagine there's maybe more diplomacy that's called for sometimes uh, just because every comment has an audience of at least two or three other people. Right. You know, well, I, in, a, in a steel band, the comment, the comment affects 30 people, no matter what right. I say, there are 30 people who are going to move slightly when I say something. So that is a different thing, but privately yeah. you have a lot of sway. Well, yeah, and certain students, uh, uh, certain things work, and other students, other things work, right? So uh, I'll, I'll have students who are trying to convince me, whether they know it or not, to help them feel better about being bad at their craft. And it's like, no, like, I'm sorry that you're feeling this way, but if you want to feel better... A nice way is to indeed get better, <laughs> you know. Uh, but then there's also uh, another uh, another lens through that of maybe that kid's killing it, but they still feel horrible about it. At which point we're talking about what is it to to still feel horrible about your playing when well, you're like playing years beyond your means right now, right? And also there is the there's the B side to that where where it's a mirror image where you have a kid who is all emotionally there has all of the work ethic has all the thing, but it's going to, and I would say maybe this is a humble brag, but I think this is me as a person. I knew what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. The particular set of arms and hands I was given, I might've just been a better rugby player and I should have just done that. But like four mallets weren't my, so I had to, I have to practice an hour longer than Jason Adam or Eric do. Yeah. And, but then also there's the other side, there's the kids who have all the hands but the thing that's going to keep them from working is this. Right. It's their approach. It's the way they act in a rehearsal. And the other day I had a student where I had to tell them, I had to pull them aside and be like, listen, I want nothing more than to sing your name from the rooftops as someone people should hire. But your hands are, your hands are not the reason I can't do that right now. Yeah. And this, the way you act around other people is going to be the thing that's going to keep me from being like, you're awesome. Hire this person. And so that's part of the B side of this too. Like as a teacher, you could be like, you got all the skill sets in the world to play Merlin or velocities. Sure. It's talking to other people. <laughs> and I have to teach well, you how to do that too, you know? Well, and I do think the young, uh, a lot of young teachers, they, they keep thinking if I get that awesome percussionist, it's going to be so fun to teach them. But sometimes that super high achieving kid is also super high maintenance. Right. And there's a whole nother batch. There's kind of a whole nother, toolbox that you have to dip into uh, for that you know um there's so much that i that i want to say about what you were just talking about uh because it well we're gonna have to do another call i think (laughs) what what time do you have to run ben do you have to do you have to run right now no no i'm good yeah okay i'm I'm okay for i'm okay for a second so we can keep chatting all right cool Uh, so to me one uh, 
something I've been getting a lot of traction with the last five or six years in lessons is to talk in in language in terms of what's effective and what's not. Uh, so instead of saying this is right or wrong, um, we could talk about like, well, let's talk about that coaching that snare drum. You know, uh, it's cool that uh, that you got the feedback that this wasn't good enough. I don't think it's cool that the teacher walks out of the room. (laughs) It it might have been. Listen, it's cool that teacher draws your attention to it. Let me be clear. Let me let me just let me be one hundred percent clear. This is a memory that I had when I was twenty years old, and uh, I don't remember if it was at the beginning or the end of the lesson. It could have been at the. I could have done the last five minutes snare drum roll, and that's what he said and left. So to be clear. I take a bullet for Larry in every aspect of his teaching. Um, so yeah, I want to I want to be clear that my memory here it may not be serving Larry very well. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm really glad you're talking that way too. Yeah. And, and uh, gosh, I appreciate as I'm getting older too, just how blurry some of those memories get, huh? Um, I, well, eyewitness testimony is by far the least reliable testimony. So again, like when we're totally. talking about memories, that's it's eyewitness testimony, and I'm the only eyewitness. So like, <laughs> I'm sure if you ask Larry, I had, a, like, I had a similar teacher in undergrad to whom like I feel like I owe him a percentage of every paycheck I get. Like, <laughs> and he and he was like totally the guy from Whiplash, you know? Yeah, and, well, and, and that's like people can and, think that like people can be offended on my behalf about something that that Larry did, but yeah. no, I'm but sorry. Sure. If if you're coming at Larry, you're coming at me. So so get ready, <laughs> get ready. Sure. And, and there's so much that I learned that because, again, if we're talking about the bat, maybe walking out of the room was the bat you needed at that point. It's 20 years later. You're still talking about it. Like, clearly it left an impression. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and a positive for to be clear for a lot of my students, regardless of where they're at in their emotional intelligence, just framing my language in terms of uh, if you do this differently, you'll get this result. Uh, it is a pretty easy, innocuous way of going there without like casting dispersions on the character or something right, like that, right? right? Yeah. Um, so it's easy. The more I've practiced it, the more effective it is to do the like, hey, you know, if you prep higher, it'll be easier to get a louder stroke there. Instead of saying, you know, your your mouths are too low here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and giving them the the language. So that when they engage in self-talk that so many students do, it's more about a tool instead of yeah. a, a, um, a decree that they've been doing something bad or wrong. Well, on that on that front, so like when you're diagnosing, one of the, a student came up to me the other day, um, and she's doing great in steel band. Uh, I think has never played pan before. Is just if I'm calling balls and strikes, is not the strongest double second player in in the in the room, but. If I, when I, when you, like you said, when you're looking at a bunch of students privately, like you have somebody with a skill set here to judge them based on a skill set someone else has is ridiculous. So I'm not going to be like, you need to be better. No, I'm, I'm seeing the improvement at the level I need to see out of her. And so I'm happy as a clam. Right. Yeah. And I'm not going to pick out every wrong note because I can see based on the progress she's making that in three weeks, that note will be fixed. So I'm not going to yeah. embarrass her in front of everybody. Right. But she came up to me afterwards and she's like, how much should I be practicing? I was like, oh, that's that's actually a really great question, and it's something students, I think, ask a lot. They ask of themselves, but when she came to me, I was like, she's looking for an answer here. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'll tell you what worked for me. Um, in my undergrad, I planned out my entire day from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., minute by minute. Yeah. And that worked for a couple months, and then I was like, okay, I can't. So, okay, I can't actually do six hours a day here because I've got clarinet methods and all these other things I've right. got to be practicing for too. So for my hour, 
I'm going to be really specific about what I'm going to get done on Merlin, what I'm going to get done on Ribbons, what I'm going to get done on Scheherazade. So Merlin bars 32 to 36. And if it took me 10 minutes, great. If it took me the whole hour, fine. But And so then it's like, okay. But then when I got to grad school and I have two classes <laughs> and Bob is giving me like a shitload of rep, then I was like, well, then it was 12 hours a day. I get in there at yeah. 8. I'd take a lunch break, a pee break, I'd go to class. But then I wasn't done practicing until 8 or 9 at night. And now I have 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So in that 20 minutes, I've practiced enough of, and I know what I need to do. If I have a hard piece of music, I know I maybe need 30 minutes. And I know that it's not going to happen until next Thursday. <laughs> yep. Because I'm, I live in Connecticut and my gear is in New York. Like all of those things. And I was like, so take all of that as Josh Quillen for 20 years trying to figure out how I practice. And it's been whatever, 20 years times 365 days a year, whatever the math is. Let's say it's 40,000 days. I've, I've practiced that. You are on day one of that. And so the only difference between you and me is I've just done it for 20 years. So start. And she's like, and she's like, start with what? And I was like, what did I just say? And she's like, oh, we'll write everything down. It's like, yeah. So start tomorrow. Say you're going to practice for six hours. Shoot for the moon. And then after you're done and you've shat the bed on everything and you didn't get anything done, go have some Ben and Jerry's and write down your goals for the next day, having learned from what you just did. And she, right. and she looked at me and she's like, oh. <laughs> and again, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. One of the things I'm actually tasked with as an educator is to teach everybody how to practice too, <laughs> oh, heck yeah. you know, like, oh, yeah, the time and, management piece. And yeah, I know in, in the percussion studio, we do full, like full uh, studio convocations on mm-hmm. how to practice uh, 15 minute manager strategies and things yeah, of that yeah. nature. Yeah. And it, it feels like in my lifetime, a lot of what some people might call soft skills of that nature mm-hmm. are becoming more and more important because for any number of reasons, students aren't learning when they're younger. Well, and this, that's the, because like, again, like getting good at sight reading, you get rid of the emotional baggage you have over hitting a C over a C sharp, right? Yep. Practicing, it's the same thing. Like you, you, you're you not good at what you're doing and it sucks and it hurts and you're not, you know, oh, my elbow's hurting for some reason. <sighs> Shit. Like I practiced too many crash symbols today. I did Beethoven. I did Chike 4 for three hours. Okay. Maybe sure. you don't need to do Chike 4 for, for three hours. Do it for three <laughs> minutes at a time every hour, you know? Um but, and I if do, I could inject, I, yeah. if you don't mind, I'd like to interject really quick. Uh, those people who can do chike for three hours and benefit from it, like, that's awesome. Like, sometimes it's okay that there are just that amazing of people floating out there. Like, uh, like yeah, Theater Milk Cubs are ridiculous. Casey Cangelosi's ridiculous. And there's space in my worldview to not have to be those people because we've got those people. We're so fortunate. I, that just they're listen, just killing it, you know. I like, just listen to and, and I certainly don't mean this as a slight to sew, but there mm-hmm. isn't much in me that's like feeling like I really need to be angling for your job and sew or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Totally, um, totally. Well, and that's because, well, I don't have any interest in. I don't. I'm barely able to figure out how to do this job. So why would I be like, you all need to work to be in so percussion. It's like, I, <laughs> right. I'm still, I'm still working to stay in so percussion. Like I wake up and I open up our budgets. It's like, you really want to do this thing? Like, right. like, all right, come on, come on in. The water is freezing. Like it is, it's not, 
it's not what you, well, maybe it is partially what you think it is, but again, I don't have any interest in any of my students becoming full-time percussion quartet players. Why? Because I'm actually not a full-time percussion quartet player. I play in steel bands. I do podcasts. I don't, I mean, I don't make money from podcasts, but I spend a fair amount of my time relative to other things doing podcasts. Um, I play with orchestras from time to time. I freelance if I can from time to time. Like I teach string quartets at Princeton. Like there's a variety of things I do. And, um, I just, I worry a little bit that there's the like seek, seek not the master, seek what the master sought. And I think like at some, somewhere along the line, people miss a little bit of like, cause again, to go back to the thing that we were talking about earlier about privilege and power and like two white guys doing a thing or, um, somebody looking at, so percussion is for white guys. It's like, yep. You just said the most obvious thing you could possibly say. And so I want like, what's the next 10 words? Yeah. That's and, full. Uh, that's a West wing episode right there, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But, but that, that is important to me because yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, again, to go back to, my view of what I, how I feel humans should talk to you, whether you're a teacher to a student, whether you're a student viewing another chamber group or, or something or anybody in your life who you see in a position of power or in a yeah. position that you want to have, um, tr- doing your best to see everybody as human beings that all have individual struggles, all have individual privileges and lack thereof. Um, I really, I want to move past this era of saying the most obvious and get to the next, get to where the blood starts shooting out because that's actually the hardest thing. Talking about working in a black community is awesome. Are you willing to do it? And that's the other thing that I feel like not, not many people are actually putting those shoes on and going to work. And that's bothers me a little bit. And how uh, incredibly unglamorous that sort of thing is. Like I, I remember in undergrad, um, uh, it was at this private Catholic school where a lot of my teachers were nuns, right? Mm-hmm. And they they would sometimes invite you along to things. They'd be like, "Hey, I'm going to go help out at this, uh, uh, like at a nursing home. Would you like to come?" And it's like, "Sure," you know. So, uh, and I found myself doing some of these things periodically and expecting like a parade afterward. Like, like why doesn't anyone care that I just did a nice thing? You know, it's like, and and like you have this glow about yourself that you're like a saint, but then very soon, like nobody seems to have noticed. Right. Uh, And, and I, I, I've, I've taken a lot of comfort when I see people doing great work quietly like when it's it, like it, it's probably not easy for you to get to the the pan yard in brooklyn like think about how many hours you've spent doing the tedious not fun stuff and no one's given you a little ribbon for that you know what i'm saying cuz it's still work it's righteous work it's um powerful work but it's work well, and i, I think uh, a lot ahead, of people sorry. i know they shy away from that work because it's still work and they're like dang it why why isn't anyone like putting up a website in my honor yet well one of the thing i i want to and i want to i don't want to don't take this as me pushing back or disagreeing with you but i think one of the things that get that when people talk about like when you said it's unglamorous work um sometimes the implication there is that 
like you're going into the salt mines. Like oh hell no! In, no, I, I know no, what no, you're no, saying. No, there, yeah. no, I, I, I just, I, I understood what you meant. Uh, to like sure. just work in general, like doing budgets for so is exactly. not glamorous work. But but when I track the reason I think I have so much discomfort around the talk of like like diversity and like let's work with you know like let's serve the underpop underserved populations. It's like. It is actually, it's very, I would say the, the teaching and the work that I've done in my life and that I still do in my life, um, unglamorous isn't the word, but most fulfilling on a oh, sort of DNA granular level of like, no one ever gives me really great, thoughtful, culturally appropriate food at a so percussion event. <laughs> And I'm just asking, I'm saying that not like, I love so percussion. I love being all of it, but culturally there's a thing that's not sort of glommed on to the new music world in a way where food and those sorts of things are a natural part of that environment. That's just a true thing. Like you might get subway one day, you might get a local catered Mediterranean place. Then depending what mm-hmm. town you're in, every time I'm in a pan yard where parents are around, there's food there's conversations happening in every corner. And yeah. so while some people might see that as like chaos or, or unglamorous, it's like, ah, I don't want to like, it's just too dirty a work. Like, ah, I don't know how if I can get it. And it's like, no, 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 no. Actually trust me when I, when I say, sure, you'll have some moments of confusion, yeah. but the type of work you'll be doing, which is building relationships and building trust. I've ha- I've had to work. I have to hard. I have to work way harder in the new music world. I feel to convince other people to trust me. And I have to hide a lot more of who I am as a person in the new music world than I do when I'm in the steel pan world. And I'm not saying that maybe that I don't know how to, how to say that without feeling glib, but it's true for me in my lived experience. I'm, I am myself when I'm in a pan yard and I have to put on a little bit more of a costume when I'm in the pan, the, the new music world. And I want I feel like that's a thing that eventually is going to collide where sure you might have a lot of folks joining the music world, but eventually mm-hmm. if that human element, that sort of, I don't know how to describe it. It's really missing. I feel like from the, the world that I operate in a lot. And so when I go to the pan world, yes, some people might say unglamorous. And again, please no, I'm not attacking sure. you, here, you here, but I'm sorry. It's better. It's just, it's just better on every level I can, I can point to from like the teaching level. Like you have students who like, you're telling them something. I have students I've told something in a pan yard 10 years ago who come up to me now, they're 22 and they're like, and they play the thing I told them to do 10 years ago. And they're like, you remember that? And I'm like, you remember that? (laughs) You know? So anyway, all that is to say, I don't have a clear answer here. I'm just saying if I had a gun held to my head and was like, pick one. Bro, that it's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy for me to I I'd move to, to Crown Heights and absolutely just dive in head first and toil away. You know, I, I is that am I saying anything that sounds weird or is like No, I I what I've No, not at all. And um I've I've heard you mention this before, you know, and I, I have I've never read it as glib because I've I've heard a lot of people in for lack of a better word, uh, contemporary music community, you know, uh, talk about that. You know, I, I, I've just seen so many ensembles like where it's 
you know, um, people standing in front of a brick wall and there's like a fire escape, you know, and oh man, guilty. And, and, well, yeah, and, <laughs> totally and, and guilty. It's just like, we, quick, we need a distressed warehouse, you know. And I've I've sometimes struggled with that, especially since I've started teaching at the college level. Like I didn't mm-hmm. set out to teach at university. Um, mm-hmm. I I was happy teaching middle school and high school. Uh, like classrooms and then privately. And I've always um, like for a long time, I felt like an outsider looking in, which makes it so peculiar because like my language in terms of composition so often finds itself kind of leaning that way. Right. Like, I, so I've, I've struggled with what it is to write these pieces that I just don't want to play, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I'm so glad that there are people who live for that scene because it, it gives voice to stuff that I would otherwise just be daydreaming. So mm-hmm. if someone were to say that, you know, this ensemble is stuffy or that landscape is stuffy, um, okay, well, some people are really drawn toward that, and that's okay. Like, that's not a bad thing. It's just a stuffy thing, <laughs> you know? And that's that's all right by me. And if there's someone who's saying, we need to tear down these walls and make make this repertoire, like, accessible to other people, like, well, good on you, right? I, I'm, I, I'm thinking, that's cool. There's space for that. The world needs that, too. But I, for one, am blown away thinking that, there is a so on the planet doing so projects mm-hmm. like that's firepower that comes at a price and that the four of you guys are prepared. Well, and the people on your team that are prepared mm-hmm. to do that work. Like, I don't mind if it's stuffy, <laughs> like, cause if that's, <laughs> if that's the price that it takes to get that I'm in, like, that's really cool. And I, I think it's entirely fine for a Josh to, uh, to have completely different kind of spheres in which in which you're working and enjoy that on those different levels. I don't think anyone's asking so to like be well, maybe people are, but they're not in the group. They can go start their own group. And what's exciting <laughs> is they're going and starting their own group. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like we bought the, good. like, you know, we, we went on Amazon, you know, 20 years ago and bought the, like, the only percussion quartet starter kit that existed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, we just well, made it up, you know. Well, and, and I love, like, you had a, you had a group on, uh, what, the, the Pathos percussion? Or no, mm-hmm. I Pathos. think they went with Pathos, Pathos right? Pathos trio, yeah. And like the whole back half of your interview, you were just showing up with all this logos, like just firing these questions at him. Like, so have you considered this? What's your dream project and things like that? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking how terrific, like if your contribution as a quartet was to, you know, um, pick up where other groups were prepared to hand off certain conversations and then you're just handing that off to another group. Mm-hmm. Great. That's really cool. And if someone can find a way to decode the stuffy of, of contemporary percussion, like, Excellent. That's great. Big well, win. Right. One of the things. I mean, those. I, I appreciate you saying that. And I. It's uh, to me one of the things. Like if just a, a specific example of the way the new music. When I say new music, I mean like uh, educational music system in which you and I have a solid footing in um, versus stuff that exists outside of the educational diaspora, which yeah. uh, which to me is the the Caribbean pan community in, in New York and in the, the area. Um, and this is a conversation that I've had with a good friend of mine, Kendall Williams, who, you know, is finishing his doctorate at Princeton. And again, like, I, I don't want to speak for Kendall here. There's just, there's little, like, for example, in the Caribbean community, whether you're in Trinidad um, 
or you're in, you know, Crown Heights in Brooklyn, if you're in a room with people, you're just milling about, setting up pans, and there's 15 people in the room. When one person walks in the room and that person says good night, which means good evening, how are we doing? If they say good night, everybody in that room turns around and says good night, um, and then go about your business, right? And the person leaves says, hey, I'm taking off, see you later. Everybody says, see you later. And what, and again, to talk about like the issues around systemic problems and why, why culture, why things happen in the U.S. the, the way they do, the culture there is very tight-knit. And for lots of historical reasons, slavery being one of them, where you had to rely deeply on the people around you to survive yeah. day to day. You sang hymns in the fields because you could change the words so that the your owners didn't know what you were singing about. Yeah. You could pass message like so there that that oral like respect has now fifty seven thousand days later, when I walk into a pan room and say goodnight, everybody turns around and says goodnight to me. Now, when a student like Kendall walks into a room at Princeton, he walks into the classroom at two, you know, five PM at night and says goodnight. Nobody says anything. Now that doesn't mean that everybody in that room hates Kendall, doesn't ha- is not having a good night, doesn't genuinely care about other people. It doesn't mean that at all. But it is true that it is a, it is a cultural signet, signal to Kendall that he now has to sort of like figure out how to operate in that room. He, sure. has, to, he has to trust that everybody in the room doesn't hate him, right? So, well, and furthermore, it doesn't make the people bad people for not magically knowing this, right? Not at all. But if as an institution – over time, you don't ever make the adapt- that ad- adaptation culturally, even just subtly, just like to yeah. know that in the same way that knowing why Rastafarians have their head, lo- their locks up, like just knowing that that is so important to somebody from that culture to just acknowledge their existence when they walk in a room, then over time, you shouldn't wonder why you don't have a lot of those people in the room. Because yeah. that's the reason. That's one of the reasons. Yes, some of it is system- like some of it is a barrier to application. Some of the application fees. Some of it is blind auditions versus seeing it in person. Some of it is understanding that someone with a thick accent is not any less smart than someone with a posh British accent. Like, right. yes, but sometimes ask yourself how many times a black person's walked in the room, said hello, and you did not acknowledge that they said hello because it's not part of your cultural thing, right? And right. so for me now, I'm very conscious of it. If I'm in a room at Princeton and Kendall walks in and says, good night, I go, good night. <laughs> and I'm the only, you know, like two, somebody else would be like, good night. Like, cause they're, they're like, why did he say that? You know? And to me, it's like that it's part and parcel with everything. And I, I, I really have my worry a little bit is that I, that, that stuff just doesn't feel as important as saying that we fixed our application fee to our thing. Sure. You know? and, well, and it feels, uh, well, it feels kind of like it's bookending what we were talking about at the beginning of our visit. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's not a one or the other. It's the messiness of the inside of it. You know, yeah, It's because, a yes and approach rather than a like, well, let's do this or that. Well, and I, Yeah, and I can imagine there's probably some sign or a sticker on a window just outside of that classroom saying how much Princeton appreciates a student like Kendall. Uh, but still, he just doesn't. Uh, perhaps feel comfortable walking in a room or out, you know, and, and there's like, it's great to say these things, but to actually do them uh, often looks way different than any of us can even imagine yet because of what a system propagates. Right. And, right. and, 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 and I, I don't know, want to, I don't want to imply that again, like you, you, you made the point and I appreciate it that like, it's, 
it's a tricky thing because it's not the people in the classroom's fault. Like, they didn't get up in the day and they're like, I'm definitely going to not acknowledge the black person who walks in the room. Like, that's not at all what, what 99.9% of the people are thinking. It's right. how do we, like, if I was running Princeton or NYU or any big Harvard, any big institution, I would be like, we are absolutely putting you, you're going to Crown Heights. Oh, you're taking <laughs> well, a steel drum class with Josh Quillen? Awesome. For three of the classes, we are really going to invest in getting buses and everything we need to do to get mm -hmm. you to Crown Heights to see what a real steel band is. Because there, you're going to be taught how to say hello to everybody when you walk in the room. Not because I'm there giving you a syllabus that says, here's how you do it. Because yeah. you'll learn how to do it because you have no choice. And like... And that, that to me would feel like that's a steel drum class I want to teach. Maybe we don't learn a ton of rap. We don't learn the panoramas, but you actually learn how to say good night when someone says hello to you, you know? Well, sure. I, uh, this and then, sorry. And then you can ask the, like, and then your students, when you're in that situation, you can then ask the questions. Hey, um, we've, we've, this is the third time I've seen you. Can, your hair looks amazing. <laughs> what, can you talk to me about it? Like, you know, like, and then you can have that sidebar and then that person will be like, Yes, it costs four hundred dollars and takes eight hours, and you could be like, "What? Are you serious?" Like, and then yeah. I take it all out. I'm actually, I actually have very short hair underneath this. Wait, why do you like? Then you can have that. Then a person from Korea is having a conversation with somebody, you know, of African descent. Like, ah, that, that to me is the nut of what education really, really, truly is. And I feel yeah. like in fifteen, like if I was starting an institution now, I'd be very curious to see how that would pan out in fifteen or twenty years. Yeah. And I think, well, just uh, I, I know you just said the word curious, but mm -hmm. uh, what you were saying before that made me think of how cool it is that students see you being curious, mm -hmm. even if it's taking a risk of making you uh, feel vulnerable when you say these things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think it's, it, I think those types of conversations work privately, but they also work publicly too. And mm -hmm. I, I I teach at a community college in addition to NIU. So on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, um, I teach at um, uh, at the College of DuPage, which is in Glen Ellen, which is a suburb in Chicago, kind of near where, near where my wife and I live. And there's such an eclectic group of people mm. in in that ensemble that to not embrace it would be woefully tone deaf. Like, mm. it's obvious that there are differences. Like, why would we not celebrate them? You know, like, why not embrace that? And... Uh, in my percussion ensemble right now, um, I have nine students in it. Um, three of them are trans. One of them has Down syndrome. Uh, one of them is good at reading pitches, but awful at reading rhythms. Another one is struggling with... I'm the other uh, way around. I'm the other way around. I'm good at rhythms, sure. bad at pitches. <laughs> uh, another one's struggling with drug addiction. Um, another one has such profound anxiety that attendance is one out of three times, but mm -hmm. is one of our best uh, players. <laughs> you know, like, and, and we can just go down that list. Like There were years where I had a Vietnam vet standing next to um, a heroin addict standing standing next to um, uh, a retired chemistry teacher. And, and, and I've come to appreciate, like, that's exactly where we need to live. Uh, otherwise, like, what's fun about it? Like, here's, if we're looking for homogeny, like, there, there's other things that we could be doing. Here's the other reason why I, I, I fundamentally feel like, you know, taking a class of, you know, Princeton kids to a, a Brooklyn pan yard and then eventually, or taking my NYU kids to Trinidad, which we're going to do in a year. Mm -hmm. um, because you are then 
automatically going to be forced to talk with people who have different worldviews than you do. The Vietnam yeah. vet standing right next to a, you know, a super far left, like going to tr- chain myself to a backhoe and not let them tear a tree down person. Yeah. They have to communicate with each other. Why? Because they also pay taxes in the same city. They also have the trash come yeah. taken out by the same people. If you are going to block somebody out because they voted for Trump, you better damn well hope that that person isn't your trash person. Sure. You know, you better hope it's not the person who purifies the water in your town that goes through the wastewater treatment plant. You want that person out of your life? All right. You're going to get Girardia. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, like the logical end of all of that is is solitude because <laughs> eventually yeah. you're going to find something like eventually you'll find something about your spouse that you'll have yeah. to, you know, and I just like, I'm sorry. I, I, I want my students to be have strong feelings but also have those feelings tempered by everyone else around them. I've had my political views tempered by working in the steel pan community. Yeah. Like I, I feel what I feel about the second amendment and gun culture in the United States, but also, okay, let's take away the second amendment. Do you think the Democrats will have the African-American support? (laughs) Are you asking I mean, me for real? No, no, no. Because, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying there's something to think about. Like, sure. What, and, and if and if the argument about the Second Amendment is is that the from the right is that we need uh, as a vulnerable population we need to protect ourselves against an aggressive government, and yeah. if we're following the line of the anti-racist argument, which I I actually fundamentally agree with, which is that systems of government have tended to oppress black populations a lot, especially in this country. Yeah. Let's just ask a question. Which population do you think has the most genuine fear of their government? Do you think it's the white people? No. By and large, it's going to be – so it's all connected. And to to walk around and being like, well, we got the black vote because I'm a Democrat. And it's like, well, I don't know. I've worked with a lot of black people who have complicated views on gender, who have complicated views on gay rights, who have complicated views on abortion, on religion, but, on all these things. Then- and – I'm sorry. Like, like you, my views have been tempered in a healthy way because I value those people and I want them in my life. So I'm going to figure out a way to be around them. Yeah. Well, I think so much, so much of our political landscape uh, is hurting right now because we, we do see people in these antiquated blocks of voters that just aren't, it's not rolling that way anymore. Right. Um, uh, well, you were talking about um, people looking at so and just be like it's for white guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we even talked about this last time. Uh, I, uh, there's just as much. Um, there's just as many different views uh, in people of color as there are white people, right? Uh, and to treat any group of people and just assume that they're going to vote away because maybe in the 70s, uh, that's how it rolled, or in the early 80s, like that's just begging for a beating. It really is like in a political landscape. And I get a little irritated by that sometimes that, um, that we think that because uh, this block of people four years ago voted this way, that they're just magically going to do it again. Like I, I do think it's the job. It's, it's the job of the politician to earn the trust of people over and over and over again. Cause so often we note when, when it's lost, <laughs> you know, um, it's real easy to just kind of go on automatic pilot and shame on them for that. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think seeing I think seeing anybody, whether it be like all marimba players or all of drum corps or all Latino or all black people or all or seeing anybody as a block. Yeah. Again, that it's the most it's the most it's the easiest thing to call as far as a ball or a strike. And I I, I just wanna I wanna encourage people, including myself and you, to like do the next hardest thing like work to get to the next step as quickly as you can because i think the top thing that top layer of skin sheds away real quick as soon as you get to the nuances of stuff yeah and uh, something you said that kind of resonates me if you're talking about just constantly cutting people out of your life because you disagree with them you end up with no people in your life (laughs) like the solitude piece Uh, for some people they might think that's that's what they want you know and good on them if that's like uh, like an aspiration uh, but if it's a byproduct of just poor coping mechanisms, then maybe you learn some other skills, right? Yeah, and again, I want to, and two also, I think in terms of to just to keep going back to the initial thing that we set up here of like, you know, why why is it feel, why do I feel like I can have these conversations, like as a as a white person talking to the well. I can say out loud. I think if if other folks are questioning that. Totally understand it. I would encourage you to go listen to every podcast I've done and go find the people of color I've spoken to. And I think what you'll see is I have the same level of comfort speaking with them that I do with you. I don't see you as a different person than Kendall Williams, like in terms of what I feel I can and can't ask you or say out loud. And some of that comes from just I've had enough at bats in, and again, to be clear, Caribbean populations like again those are different from dominican or from like you know african diaspora folk like people are different everywhere in my experience i it's i've had enough at bats where i'm just less afraid to to ask and say the thing because i know i'm coming from a a place of genuine curiosity and i think i can i ask the questions in such a way that the other person when face to face like this not on social media and the example of kadeem was a great great sort of data point i think i'm I think I know how to ask the questions without setting things on fire <laughs> and it's because I've gotten better at it. And I just want to like, if you feel like if people are afraid, I think it's proof that you just haven't swung the bat enough. So well get, yeah. get with a friend who you get, go the first podcast I ever did. Do you know who I did it with? What Todd or Adam um, Slowinski. Oh, sure. <laughs> and I love Adam. He's a smart person. And I was curious about what he was going to say but he can talk forever. Yeah. And I didn't have to, I, got to, kind of guy. I had to have one question prepared. And then it was like, holy shit, I did an hour and a half podcast off of one question. Thank God. Why did I, why did I pick Adam? Because I knew I didn't have to do anything. I could yeah. just learn how to do a podcast. And then my second <laughs> podcast was with like Adam grow who I knew a little bit less, but all right. And then now I'm 200 or some 300 in and yeah. I know that there's certain ways I can ask questions to folks. Um, so anyway, Ben, I, I feel like this is a good place to wrap up. And I, and I, it's and I, again, part three, whenever you're ready for part three, we can chat about whatever, but I, this is, I've really enjoyed this. And I, I feel like you've done a good job of sort of pushing me a little bit on things that I feel. And I, I, I appreciate that. That's why I do these conversations. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And I hope people listening, got something out of it. And if anything I said, talking about Louis CK or Dave Chappelle or anything made you feel like you want to light me on fire, 
I will say this out loud. Message me on Facebook and I will send you a Zoom link and I will happily talk to you for an hour and a half. Yeah, and I I would love to offer a, a challenge along with that, mm-hmm. uh, if you don't mind. Please, uh, yeah. For people listening, I I suspect that you'd be prepared to do that without it being recorded too. Like, oh, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have yeah, to be Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and uh, I would imagine that's where some really powerful things might come of someone, if, if they're looking to indeed confront you about something or try to get more clarity, uh, there doesn't even need to be an audience for that because that's where I think intimacy really lives, right? And, like, that's where friendships can be born, right? Yep, and, and um, I, my, my only caveat with that is that my preference, because they're, in my experience too, um, yeah. when someone has to go on the record, they actually think a lot more about what they're about to say, including myself. And sometimes in personal off the record conversations, that's a way to sort of like just tear a blister off and just let it bleed pus everywhere. And, you know, I have those too, but where I want to learn the most and actually be sure of how that blister is going to heal is to have both people with headphones on and be on the record and be have that limitation because it really does generate that little extra pressure is just enough to make you distill what it is you think. Well, the and, accountability. And, yeah. And own it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I think if someone reached out to me privately and was like, hey, I wasn't going to comment on your post. Um, can we chat? Oh, yeah, let's do it privately. If someone lights me on fire, uh, my caveat is you got to come on the podcast. There you go. Yeah. If you're going to go public and go flamethrower, then you have to sit for an hour and a half and be civil <laughs> with me. And, and, I, and, I'll, I and I won't edit anything I say. It works for me. That's great. I like you know? that. Or you can uh, come on the podcast and scream at me for an hour and a half. You just have to let people see who you are. Yeah. And that is very important to me. Um, that character piece is a big deal. And it, it feels like it's uh, so often the deal breaker for me, uh, who I'm going to let in my life mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. is doing the like, okay, we can disagree, but if you're an a-hole about it, that's a different story, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Hey, I noticed something on your Facebook profile picture. You yes. have a picture of Josh Lyman. Is Indeed that right? I do. Yes. Ride or does die. That, does that mean you're a big West Wing fan? Uh, without a doubt. Yeah. I'm, I'm in, in, in did you hear, did you check out the West wing weekly podcast? You know, I have heard about it and I learned about it last week and I'm with Mm. Josh Molina, right? Sorry. With Josh Molina. Molina. Yeah. Yeah, He's a guest. And then also another gentleman named Rishi K. Sherway and, uh, they kill it. They do such a good job on it. And, uh, yeah. So if that's the language that kind of resonates with you, I think you might really enjoy them. The irony of this being the the way we end the pot, I mean, the fact Facebook and Instagram, everything went down yesterday for like five hours and the world was like, what do we do? Like I, the Josh Molina profile or Josh uh, Lyman profile picture, just speaking of my, my Yale privilege, I was at Yale when Facebook was invented and it was only available to the Ivy league schools at the time. And, you know, (laughs) being a kid from a, from from a very small rural town, I'm like, I was never in elite anything. Like I was never in a club, you know, as I was like, sweet, I'm in a club from (laughs) Yale. This is great. And so I signed up for Facebook and I checked it like once a week and it was only like pictures of lattes, but my profile picture was, I, I kept it the same. It's been the same since. So that's my one Facebook 
data point that that has never changed. There's no algorithm that can can affect my profile picture nice. uh, on Facebook. But <laughs> cool. Uh, well, hey man, this was really enjoyable. I really appreciate it. Doors always open, and um, and I hope you stay healthy. And 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 I want to. I hope we can come out and cross paths sooner than later. It feels like the world's slowly opening up, and so is getting. That could be really fun. Yeah. Things. It'd be great to, to come out to NIU and, and chew the fat and play a bit together, but tell everybody there. I said, Hey, and um, in the meantime, stay healthy and we'll look forward to chatting again. Right back at you, brother. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate it. Stay yeah. healthy. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by liquid drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend, Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check them out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. MangoChowClothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.